Hello and welcome to the Forms of Care Project podcast series. My name is Amy Thomas. We will be digging into ideas around medical treatment at the end of life and talking to a team of medical anthropologists who have been researching this area. The project is a collaboration between the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and the Open University, funded by the Economic and Social Research Council. In past episodes, we've explored ideas around doing and not doing and the overwhelming imperative to cure disease. In this episode, we will be hearing from patients themselves. How do they experience care at the end of their lives? I'm Simon Cohn. I'm based at London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And I've been researching and interested in what we call medical anthropology for many years now, looking at a whole range of different conditions and different situations where the role of anthropology really can provide perhaps different insight into classic issues around health and illness. I'm Erica Borgström. I am a lecturer in medical anthropology and end-of-life care at The Open University, and I have been researching palliative and end-of-life care for the last 10 years. My name is Annelieke Driesen. I'm an assistant professor at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. I've been interested in issues to do with health and illness, particularly dementia and end-of-life care. And in this project, I've been the ethnographer who's been doing most of the ethnography with the palliative care teams. The phrase patient-centred care has been around certainly in the NHS for many years. But in this instance, it really does mean something. It's not just a rhetorical kind of discussion of policy or anything. Uh, Perhaps in other examples, uh, when people go to the hospital or get treated in primary care, the disease that they have is in a sense almost owned as much by the expert as it is by them themselves. You know, the expert has a specialist knowledge and understanding and it's the expert who decides what treatment to give. But when patients are basically told that they're reaching the end of their life, there's a very strong sense that this is very much not just about their condition and their bodies, but about them in the entirety. And that includes their family and includes many of the other relationships. So in this instance, patient-centered care really is a genuine uh, way of thinking about, you know, what it is that they're uh, facing, what it is that they have to cope with, and the range of different impacts that it's having upon them. The team's research has uncovered strong themes around the idea of doing, i.e. actively giving a treatment, and what they call non-doing, which could be ceasing or stopping a treatment. But how do patients experience this idea themselves? How does it differ to healthcare professionals? The team spent time with patients in their homes and in hospitals to find out more. Non-doing was done by relatives and patients themselves. Patients engaged in a lot of waiting, waiting for treatment or waiting for carers to come to the house. And that isn't always um, very uh, easy to do. Freeing their calendar of some of the appointments by you know, deciding not to go for different treatment options might actually give patients back some time to do other things and to orient their, their days around other activities. Waiting is, is very challenging sometimes. If you're not careful, it defers things, it defers not only action, but what's meaningful somewhere into the future where there happens to be a date on the calendar or, or some sort of imaginary future that's even further ahead that you can't quite see yet. And the problem with that, or in a sense, the trap with that is it sort of, it doesn't allow people to live in the present because they're constantly investing in notions of the future. And I think that the staff are very aware of that. So they're aware of the, the significance and sometimes almost the over-significance that can be given to just 
a, in a, a visit home or something like that, because it becomes these indelible markers, really, of time that, um, that mean that other aspects of living can't just be done. Um. One of the things I will say about um, the, um, I'm sorry, I'm just having trouble pulling certain words out of my head, the palliative care team, mm -hmm. is I had always thought, I had always associated palliative care with end of life. Mm -hmm. But in fact, I don't think they really are. For the purpose of this podcast, we're using pseudonyms to protect the identity of those involved. This is Harry. Harry is an end-of-life care patient receiving treatment in his home as well as at hospitals. The team spent some time with Harry and asked him how he felt about his treatments. Well, they can be about end-of-life, but they're actually about accommodating life as it is. So... I'm, I may or may not have a terminal diagnosis. Um, certainly things don't look great, but um, yesterday uh, my uh, clinical, um, uh, my uh, clinical um, onc oncological um, um, consultant said to me that she thought when I said I feel like I'm waiting to die she said I don't think you're anywhere near dying so whether that was simply um, cheerleading I don't think it was I don't think that's actually good medical practice to do that I don't think she'd lie to me that way um, so I have to believe she's being honest with me. Um, uh, so um, given that, I, I, you know, clearly given the state of my health in terms of uh, the cancer, uh, my, my life is a threat, but I don't know that I'm, you know, a year or two from death, I don't know where I am. Mm -hmm. But I think given what's going on, I, I think I need to plan ahead. So. The team found that receiving end-of-life care differs greatly from person to person. One of the patients I visited in the home, he was very much uh, not willing to what, what he called give up, right? So he said, you know, I'm, I've never understood acceptance, uh, I've never understood a placidity. Um, and that I don't ever say there's nothing I can do about it. And the other patient I visited in his home, he he did the exact opposite. So he lived with um, motor neuron disease, which is an uncurable progressive disease. And his doctor offered him something and um, and Giles just said, you know, what what is that going to give me? And he actively queried with his doctor whether he the medication he was offering would give him time now, the way he was then, uh, or time at the end of his life when he would be much more dependent on care from other people. Um, and he then, when he couldn't get an answer on that question, um, he, he said he didn't want any of it. 
professionals were also recounting their encounters with, with patients or family members or those caring for family that were in hospital or in community settings, where they would reflect on uh, patients' willingness to accept or decline certain treatments and how difficult some of those conversations could be, either you know, family demanding that more interventions may be done, but also at times where there might have been reluctance from patients to accept certain treatments, even if they were deemed by the palliative care team to be really useful, for example, taking different pain medications. But there's another aspect, which is this negotiation, you know, of, of what's appropriate or what gets done when. Uh, and ideally, I think the, the team want to have a sort of alignment between their, their expectations of, of that and, and the patient's. doesn't always work like that, of course. But I think there's a sense in which, you know, what they're after is a sort of collaborative relationship between the staff and the patient about, you know, what gets done when. Well, things like um, pain relief, mm-hmm. um, dealing with um, the other matters which are or may crop up um, that um, impinge upon my day-to-day life caused by my cancer or caused by the treatment of my cancer. Um, Either the medication or I think probably more likely now the the tumor Mm -hmm. is causing a sort of um, it's uh, how do I describe it? It's a dizziness it's a sense of instability, um, like when you stand up too quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought originally it was the uh, the pain medication, but I actually think it's even when I'm, I've got the headache and I'm sort of not had pain medication in a while, I've still got this. So I think it's maybe the tumor. Um, uh, so dealing with uh, ad- 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 adjustments to the flat, my environment, that means that I'm not going to fall, or that I can deal with uh, being permanently dizzy, or at least dizzy until such time as I may have surgery, um, is um, important. Mm -hmm. And that's something the palliative care team deals with. Um, So really the day-to-day in a way. Yeah, yeah. They, they deal with any concerns I have. We also saw examples of, again, for want of a better word, resistance or subverting of those expectations about how a patient should be in, in this model of, of care. Um, and that's another way that not doing got done in terms of how, how much work patients are willing to do in terms of that engagement and involvement, either in decision-making or, or being a collaborative partner of their care, or sometimes where they wanted to be the, the lead of their care and make decisions, you know, outside of medical expertise. In addition to this negotiation between healthcare professionals and patients themselves, there were often differences to navigate between patients and their own loved ones, or between family members. Families aren't always on the same page. I remember a situation in which the palliative care professionals had invested a lot of time in in talking to relatives about why uh, treatment was being discontinued. Um, And then 
the patient and the relatives were all on board, if you will. They, they had their peace with that decision. Um, and then other family members came in from abroad and they were not yet at that point at all. So this alignment is also a very fragile state that can change depending on who's part of that conversation, who isn't. It can be different for different people, but it also changes over time. I've spoken to people who have wanted to put their own decisions about the type of care they want in writing, and it can be quite uh, challenging when people share that uh, perspective, particularly with their adult children, that they've already made those decisions in advance because it can at times threaten family relationships and the power dynamics within families as well. End-of-life care isn't simply care of the patient, right? It's about care of the fact that someone is dying who's a member of a network and a family and relationships. So often the staff are involved in caring for a whole range of different people uh, of their own kind of concerns, their own kind of fears, their own forms of suffering and distress. There was a woman in the hospital um, who wasn't uh, wanting to acknowledge she was end of life. And that became very distressing for her family members who did see this. The end of life and life at the end of life is not just about dying. It is also about living. And that's just something that became really, really apparent, apparent in these interviews and conversations and visits. Treatment might sort of intersperse these days and structure them in a certain way, but there's a lot of living that gets done in between them. These are not cases of people in denial, right, which is quite a crude way of understanding what's going on. It's just they're getting on with their lives and they're just, you know, doing the habits and the routines that at least they're able to. And they're relating to people and connect with people as much as they can. Uh, and that's just kind of part of what life is about. It's not about denial. It's just you, you don't necessarily want to remind yourself or other people all the time that you are so-called in your last stages of life. Um, because to do so just constantly kind of moves you out of the present and doesn't allow you just to, to live in the, live where you are. People didn't want to feel that they had sort of been written off. Although nothing biomedically may have been done or had, may have been reduced, it didn't mean that their life was now full of nothingness, but rather that there were other things they were doing and focusing on. And, and we definitely had experiences where they told us about the types of things they were uh, enjoying in their day-to-day -day life as they were sort of living with dying. But also, you know, in terms of how palliative care staff really sought to support people and families in order to foster that, that living in the last days, weeks, months of life. And sort of that everyday tinkering, which in the grand biomedical narrative, perhaps, um, has nothing to do with curing, but it has everything to do with making life livable and making life possible, despite um, this terminal illness. And they're much more interactive and much more responsive than any other member of my cancer care team. Um, so what has done for you, for example? Well, she's advocated for me. Mm -hmm. Well, I was feeling um, abandoned. Uh, she spoke to people and made them understand that I was having problems um, with, the, with the, the communication that was going on. 
she has liaised with my um, GPs uh, regarding medication. Um, she's a good advocate, actually. Mm -hmm. Trying to somehow capture and evoke those experiences uh, that people have uh, in our rich descriptions in, in what we call ethnography, where we're really just trying to give a sense of the overarching picture and world that people live in, uh, rather than simply what they articulate to us, which is always perilous because it includes what they think we want to hear or what they think is important. And, and it often excludes the little things that actually prove to be sometimes the most meaningful. The researchers would like to say a huge thank you to all of the participants and collaborators involved in this work. This includes the Economic and Social Research Council, the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and the Open University. If you want to find out more about this project, please do head to the website. You can find it at www.lshtn.ac.uk forward slash forms of care. This is the final episode in our three-part series, so we'd like to say thank you for listening. And if you want to find the other episodes and haven't checked them out yet, do head to the website and they'll be there. Thank you again for listening and goodbye for now. <laughs>